Well, hey, good morning, everybody. How we doing? We awake? Spring break high over? Right? For those of you that are around here, you loved the snow this week. I know that, right? Just like me, right? That was a joke. I hated it. I don't know where you're at. Um, those of you that traveled, welcome back. Uh, those of you that stayed here, you're in good company. Um, but where we're at right now, last week was Easter. And uh, just like Blake said, we, monumental day, amazing morning, um, but really important day for our church, but then also for the 51 people. And then we even had two more at our South Campus that gave their life to Christ. So super exciting um, just to be a part of that, just like Blake said. Um, but that leaves us with this week. So where are we going? What direction are we headed? And uh, we're in a new series right now, just started it today, um, and it's called Church Everywhere. And so the, the question is this, okay, maybe last week I gave my life to Christ, or maybe someone in my family gave their life to Christ last week, um, or maybe I was just here. I was just a part of it. I gave my life to Christ years ago. Um, what next? What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? What, what changes? What's different? And uh, we're gonna tackle that and then a number of other different questions throughout the next four weeks, just talking about what does it mean to be the church everywhere? At home, in our families, in our marriages, at work, uh, in our neighborhoods, all over the place. What, what does it mean? What does it look like? How do we do that? So to start, I wanna show you a picture. And uh, this is me. This is my driver's license. This is the real driver's license, real deal. How many of you wish your picture could be up there on your driver's license? Probably not. Right, I made some slight alterations to my driver's license, as you will know. 1865 is not the year I was born. However, if I did, I'd look pretty good for my age right now. You agree? So I changed that. Why did I change that? Don't take a picture of this and put this on Facebook later. That was my fear, so I changed some stuff um, because I know some of you in the room and I know what things would go through your mind, like what could we sign David up for? So the address is also different, amen. Yeah, I knew that was coming. So slight alterations, but this is why I threw it up there. Um, we all have a driver's license, or maybe a lot of us have a driver's license, um, or an ID. I'm assuming all of us have an ID, right? Maybe it's a driver's license like this one. Maybe it's a student ID. Maybe it's a military ID. Maybe it's a work ID. Uh, maybe it's a prison ID. I don't know what it is. All of us have an ID that's associated with us, and this is why it's important. Your ID says a lot about you, does it not? You know, as we, as we look at this, um, first thing I just wanna note, David Scott Dorner, that's my name. What does that tell you about me? First of all, it tells you the name in which I'm called. You know, maybe I'm named after someone, which I am. You know, it tells you about your family. So that's that, that third name, Dorner. That talks, it talks about the family that I'm a part of or, you know, years ago, maybe the, the clan I was a part of or the clan I associated with. It talks about my history, right? My history in my family or my family's history. Let's keep going. The, the address below it, 4411 Plainfield, that's here, by the way. So you're all at my house right now, apparently. So address, that's where life happens. That's where I do life, right? That's where I live with my family. That, that's, where, that's where life happens. Below that, um, you see a flag. Flag speaks to citizenship of our country. I'm a citizen of the United States, but then if you look at the top left where it says Michigan, I'm also a resident of Michigan. So it says the country to which I belong, but also the state in which I reside. It has other information, a description of me, right? Thankfully, weight is not up there, but height, 6'5", blue eyes, and then a picture that says this is what I look like in the event that I'm stopped by a police officer, which has happened, right? Different story, different day. So your ID, as you look at your own ID, says a lot about you and it describes you. But as I talk about me, let me just turn the tables here and say, um, what about you? What does your identity say about you? What's your identity? Or 
phrase it a different way. Maybe this one hits home more. What makes you, you? That's different than anybody else. Because you could look at my ID and say, I have a lot in common with David. You know, maybe not, not the name, but I maybe look a little bit like him. Tall, dark, handsome, you know. We can relate on that one. You know, address, we live close, we reside in the same state. Whatever it is, you can look and go, oh, I, I have a lot in common with this person, but, but you know, you could put all of those details. I could live in the same residence with someone that looks like me, that has all of the same things that I do, height, eyes, whatever, but we're two totally different people, right? So what makes you, you? Some of us maybe associate that with, well, this is what I do for work. <clears throat> this is my job. I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse. I'm a teacher. Maybe you swing the other way. I'm a student. You know, I'm a, I'm a college student. I'm a high school student. Maybe some of you associate your worth with like um, value, like your identity is, is this is what I bring. This is what I am. Um, it's my 401k balance. This is me. This is who I am. I'm successful. Maybe it's your position, right? Maybe a position of influence. I have influence over other people. This is what I bring. Maybe some of you, it's a little different. Maybe it's, I'm a mom. I'm a dad. I'm a grandma. I'm a grandpa. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. What makes you, you? This is why I ask, um, as we think about what is the church, and we think about the church's identity, this is where we're going over the next four weeks because if we polled the audience here, we just asked you, everybody write on a card the number one thing that comes to mind of this is what church is, we're gonna get so many different answers, right? Some of you may say church is worship. That's what we just did, right? And you're like, as far as I'm concerned, church is over, right? Worship, prayer, that, that's just my jam. Others go, eh, Church to me is teaching. It's this moment right here. It's, it's where we open up God's word and we just hear what God's word says for me in my life and how it changes things or how, it, how it's relevant to what's going on in my life or our culture. Others may say church is about being a beacon of light in our community and it's about pointing people to Jesus in whatever we do, in whatever facet, in whatever environment. Others may say the church is like this vessel of change in the world that we, we serve the world, we defend people who are oppressed, we fight for injustice, what, what, fight against injustice, I guess. We, we make a difference in the world on behalf of the church. And here's the thing, all of us would be right, that all of these things make up church, but, but what is it that makes church, church? And this is what we're gonna jump into today. So I just have to tell you, um, today I am so excited to share about one of my favorite cities in the Bible. So if I would say Ephesus, Ephesus is the city that we're gonna focus on today. Um, it's in the Middle East. Think about the image that's going through your head right now. Like Ephesus, I've heard this before. This is the book of Ephesians. What's going through your head? Likely, if you're maybe like me when I was growing up, I picture a field, lots of hills, maybe a little water, just a little bit, but it's in like Israel-ish area. Um, so probably a bunch of goats and sheep and just open land. If that's your perception of Ephesus, um, this is why I'm excited, it's totally wrong. Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, is Paul, a man named Paul, writing to a group of churches that lived in Ephesus, and this is in the first century AD. So this is why this is cool. Ephesus is the third largest city of the known world at this time. And this is important because you have to understand the context in which Paul was writing to at the time. So Ephesus, number three city in the world as far as population goes. First century, which means 100 AD and before, they had over 250,000 people living in this place right here. This is the map of where it is. 
So if you look, you can see Greece and Athens are just to the left of it there. And then Ephesus, it's right on the port. It's in modern day Turkey today. But, but you look at that and go, okay, so a quarter million people lived here in the first century. But this is, it, it gets better than this. They're number three. They're known for so many different things. They're, they're a hub for um, ethnic groups. So there, there's just people groups all over the place. They're all very different. This is a rendering of what it might've looked like. Uh, skilled tradesmen, skilled architects, skilled doctors. Get this. They had a medical college in 100 AD. What must have that been like? right? There's not x-rays, there's no computers, there's no internet. What pharmacy do you go to, right? So they have a medical college. Here's what else they have, renowned doctors that live there. A library, look at this thing. This is a library built in the first century AD in Ephesus. And this thing was so big, it was unreal, like for the times. They housed 12,000 scrolls in little cubbies and compartments that were resistant to humidity or temperature changes. This is first century AD. How do you come up with this? This is what else they had. Library. Um, they had marble streets. That sounds expensive, because it was. Marble streets, but then unbelievable. A sewer system underground. Okay, none of you are taken back by that. This is the first century AD. They don't have water towers, but they have plumbing that goes under their streets that takes human waste away. So for service, I'm like, wow, that sounds like Sparta. And then I said that out loud and I was like, some of us have a little bit more plumbing today than other parts of Michigan, AKA Sparta. That was a joke on Sparta. I'm sorry if you're from Sparta. This is why it's interesting though. This, this group of people, some of you just got that. You're like, oh, that's East picking on Sparta. <clears throat> this city or this community was a hub for the known world at the time. That out of this city came uh, unbelievable advancements in technology like plumbing. It came doctors who were making discoveries that were just blowing people's minds because it actually made a real difference in the lives of people. <clears throat> it was a center for education and political thought and philosophy, that out of here came political leaders, out of here came leaders of philosophy or teachers or religions, out of here came so much multi-ethnic, multi-everything culture that this was the place to be. Compare it to modern day New York City or Hong Kong or Los Angeles, this, this place of like things go out of here, they leave here, they don't come in and influence it. This is the hub of influence, the last thing, I just think this is unbelievable. To give you an idea of entertainment, this is what one of their amphitheaters looked like in Ephesus. And as you see this, right, you, you can kind of see the people on the bottom right-hand side. So you, you kind of get an idea, like this thing's pretty tall, it's pretty massive. Look at it from the air though, it looks like this. This thing was huge. And it just speaks to not only the amount of people that lived and resided in Ephesus, but also the hub for entertainment. This, this is the stage to be on at the time. And so Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's writing the letter to a group of churches that live in Ephesus. And there's two major groups that are at play here. And it's the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentile is a fancy word for non-Jew. So Paul's writing to the Jews and Gentiles because they're all spread out in different like house churches. They're in like these little groups of churches all throughout because they would never be caught in a space like this, worshiping or praying or teaching together. Like as you look around here and you look at people, so often we just think like what we're doing right now is exactly what they were doing back then and it's actually not, it's different. 
What they would do back then, because of the cultures, they would meet in homes, or they'd meet in, in private residences, in just small groups of people, because the culture said, you can never claim one truth, you can never claim one God, you can never claim one anything, that to each his own. Everybody can do your own thing. If you have your own God, you have your own God. If you have your own truth, you have your own truth. If you have your own definition of life or sexuality or, or whatever it is, eh, we're not gonna say anything. Because if you would, if you were part of a group that would stand up and say, no, there's one God, there's one truth, there's one tr scripture, there's one, one anything, you actually, you would face persecution by the community and the religious and political leaders. It was not okay. Acceptance, social acceptance on every level was mandatory. And if not, it was faced with persecution. So Paul's writing to these churches who don't gather together like this. They gather in little sects of like, okay, this, this group over here, everybody's pretty similar or they're all related somehow. So there's a church. And then there's a totally different church, different ethnicity or different background or different social status over here, different educational level. And they would just, they would split up all apart. And so Paul, in writing this letter, he hits the same topic over and over and over throughout the entire letter. And it's this, unity. Because the way that the church was functioning, and I say church is big C church, the way it was functioning was we do our own thing. They do their own thing. We never mingle. We never work together. We never talk together. Everything is so separate. And if you really want to be a true Christian, you'll do stuff our way. And it's really interesting, just take a time out here, to think about the cultural climate that we live in today. That you think about all these different churches or different denominations or different paths, or you think about our culture and go, is there one truth that's ever supported in our culture today? Or is it kind of similar to each his own? You, you define whatever you want and face persecution, maybe, maybe not to the point of death or stoning like back then, um, but maybe in terms of relationships or backlash at work or family relationships. So this is really important what Paul's about to say, and we're just gonna open it up. So this is in Ephesians 2, and if you have a Bible, I just wanna challenge you, open it up, um, grab it, pull it out. If you have your phone, pull out your phone, Google it. It's just, it's important to open up God's word together so you know I'm not just making stuff up. So pull that out. We're also gonna put words up on the screen for you, so check this out. Ephesians 2, verse 19, Paul is writing, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow, say it with me, citizens. Your fellow citizens fellow citizens, like together you're all citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that's the scriptures, that's the Old Testament that they had, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So this is super cool and super fun to talk about because he uses an imagery here or he uses a metaphor to describe to these different groups of churches and different groups of people what it looks like to actually be a part of the church. And so he uses this metaphor of building a building. And if you were in construction back then, or maybe even if you're in construction or some form of skilled labor today, this will make sense to you. He uses the, the phrase cornerstone. And the reason I have a cinder block up here, that's very heavy, by the way, is this would be an example of a type of cornerstone. 
And cornerstone's important because there's three different types of cornerstones when you build a building in this century, right? So first century. The first type of cornerstone that was used is this. The builder, the chief builder, the contractor, whatever you wanna call him, would take a stone and where he placed the stone was so important and so influential because where he placed it, let's say I placed it right there, that stone now determines the direction of every other stone that goes around it. That the entire foundation, the entire house, the entire building, the entire amphitheater, whatever it is, is built in relation to the first stone that's placed. And this is referred to as the cornerstone. It sets the row this way. It sets the row this way. This is it. But then there's another form of cornerstone. And this one looks like this. You take the foundation and you lay out the foundation so that it makes a square or a rectangle or outlines, whatever it is, but then the cornerstone would go two or three layers up and would serve as a sort of puzzle piece that it would fit in between the stones around it and it would basically lock the foundation in place. And so Paul here, he's talking about Jesus and he's saying Jesus is the cornerstone. So you just think about this imagery for a second. Jesus is the first piece that's placed and everything else in Christianity or Christendom or church is built around the placement of Jesus, the cornerstone. Well, that works, that's accurate. But then here's another form of cornerstone. Once you have the foundation, which he just talked about are the scriptures, right? The law and the prophets. You have the foundation of the church, which has been set and Jesus locks in that foundation. That without it, it's a little unstable and you're not totally sure, you know, but yeah, Jesus and it locked everything in. This is the foundation in which you build upon everything else. But there's one other type of cornerstone, and I I think this one's awesome, is this. No response? This is awesome, okay? Come on, wake up, get in here with me. This is super cool. This is the top of the building at the top of the walls. This cornerstone, it's called a cornerstone again, locks in all of the walls or structures that hold up the entire place. It locks it in and holds it together. This is the piece that makes it all possible because in the event of an earthquake or in the event of a storm or in the event of something that challenges the integrity of the building, this piece holds it together. Let's just think about the church for a second. Has the church ever faced persecution? Has the church ever adapted or had to change because of a cultural or climate setting? Has has the church ever faced hardship or faced attack or faced anything? And what this is saying is Jesus is the cornerstone that holds it together and maintains the strength of the church. This is unbelievable. The, The metaphor works so well and it doesn't matter which type of cornerstone he's talking about, all three of them fit. So it's just phenomenal, in my opinion. This, Jesus is the cornerstone of the faith. But then this is the question. As we talk about church for the next four weeks, we as the church, what does it mean to be the church? What's church? The church was always people. So this is where it gets weird, right? Paul, Paul is talking to a group of people using the analogy of a building to describe the people. Did you follow me? Some of you just glossed over. You're still on spring break, okay? Come back in. Jesus is the cornerstone that holds the building together that Paul's talking about, but the church is not actually a building. The church is a group of people. 
I think it's in Matthew. Jesus and his disciples go up on a mountaintop and Jesus and Peter, one of his disciples are talking and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And the word he used there, the word Jesus used was not a, a word in Greek that referred to a sort of structure or building. It was the word ekklesia. And the word ekklesia meant a gathering of people. That from the dawn of creation to when Jesus established his church in, during his ministry to today, the church has always, is, and always will be made up of people. And what unites people of different races, of different backgrounds, of different ages, of different socioeconomic statuses, education levels, 401ks, what, whatever it is that you can just go, well, what about this difference? <clears throat> yes, Jesus is the one piece that unites all of the church together, and that's what we're a part of. So what is church? I wrote down a couple things here. Um, the church, from the earliest start of the church, let's go back, um, God made a covenant with Abraham in, in Genesis in the Old Testament. So Abraham, Father Abraham, maybe heard of him before. God has a covenant with Abraham and God says, Abraham, I'm telling you, um, you are gonna be the father of so many nations, so many thousands of people. In fact, look up at the stars. Just look at all the glimmering stars. You'll have more kids than that. Like your, your descendants will just outnumber the stars in the sky. And he went, for real? God said, yes, and I'm gonna use you and I'm gonna use your descendants to bless the entire world until I return. That your people, Abraham, your lineage will be my people and I will be their God and I will use them, aka the church, to be a vessel of my blessing to the rest of the world. What's another function of the church? Agents of change. The way that God works in our world is, to me, it's just unbelievable. It's so cool. He uses people, broken people at that, who make up his church to lead, guide, minister to, aid, and protect the world around them. God works through people and he works through his church. What's another one? Ambassadors of God. That we as the church, if you say, yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I follow Jesus, you've been entrusted with the role of ambassador. What's an ambassador in a political realm? An ambassador overseas is someone who represents the country far away. We as ambassadors get to represent our God to other people. That the church is the ambassador that points people to God. Another one, I love this one. This one was in Ephesians, is temple. And temple is important because in, in the first century when they're talking about this um, and other centuries beyond and before, the temple was the place in which God lived. That the temple is where God took up residence. And there was a whole order and there was a whole priestly order of this is who can enter the temple and this is who can come into the presence of God and when and after what. And so there was so much complexity into when you can come into the presence of God before Jesus. And Jesus established this new order that said, you now come to the Father through me and I, Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, take up residence in my church. That if you say, yes, I'm a part of the church, God takes up residence inside of you. The church is a temple for God. 
two more. A lampstand. Um, this was often used in like Old Testament imagery, but you would have a, a lamp that would bring light to a room because they didn't have electricity. They had plumbing, apparently. They had sewer, but they didn't have electricity. So they would take a lamp, maybe on a stand like this, and they would place the lamp on top and everything around that lamp would get light. Darkness, a dark world. God says, my church is a lamp and it goes into darkness and it brings light. And then the last thing here I wrote, it sets people free. That God's church is in the business of setting people free from slavery, from sin, from addiction, from brokenness. God's church is a vessel of change in our world for his glory. So the first time I understood this, or the first time I really felt like I got a picture of what the church looks like, um, I was in college. I was a freshman uh, over at Grand Valley. I've shared this story with you before. Um, I came into school, I was really confused. I was out of control and I was like, hey, I'll be a doctor. That sounds easy, pays well, I think that'll be fun. So I went in and two weeks into intro to biology, wow, worst experience of my life, okay? I got a, an F on my first test or paper, whatever it was, and I looked at it and I went, I think somebody else wrote my name on their paper. Like, this is super weird. Oh, I answered that. Wow, I am not good at science at all, right? So change my major, change my major. Change. So lost, so like, why am I created, God? This, none of this works, none of this makes sense to me. But I found myself, um, six months later, I was at a conference down in Atlanta, and it was called Passion, if you've heard of Passion before. And I'm at this conference, and there's 45,000 other college students from all over the nation and all over the world, and they're all in one place, and this is all we did for three days. We worshiped, we prayed, we listened to teaching on the Bible, and we had small groups. Some of you are like, wow, death, right? That sounds horrible. It was the most life-giving experience of my life. There's at that point, I still remember, I was at the point and I was looking out at 45,000 people worshiping God, just nonstop on their knees, praying, giving into him, giving their lives to him, allowing God to be in charge of their lives and to use them as all of the things we just talked about in their world. And I remember looking out and going, this is church. That it doesn't matter about the building or the concrete or the sound system. It, what matters is the people. And it was unbelievable. It changed my life from that point on. And what, what Paul is saying here to the, this Ephesian group is that is church, that when you come together and you worship and you pray together and you share with one another and, and you share struggles and you share highlights and, and you share life with other people and then you come back to God and you just worship and praise, this is church. And so church speaks to your identity. This is why this is so important. Um, I love this. Your identity leads to actions. Who you are determines what you do. Agree or disagree? Agree. Who you are determines what you do with your life, what you do with your freedom, what you do with your free time. It, it, who you are determines what you do in every facet of life. So how do you do that? Or how do you live that out? And this is, this is probably one of the cooler stories I've gotten to share 
yet. Um, 1968, 69, how many of you, I'm just kidding, I'm not gonna ask. Um, I was around, born in 1865, you remember that. So 1968, 1969, um, there was a pivotal moment in US history in which we sent a space shuttle to outer space to go land on the moon. Some of you remember that. Um, so if I show you this picture, how many of you actually know who that guy is? Anybody? Yell it out. Nobody, the crowd goes quiet. So this guy is not Neil Armstrong, if that's what you're thinking, but you don't wanna be wrong. That was a good way to keep that to yourself. This is actually Buzz Aldrin. You heard of Buzz before? Not Buzz Lightyear, for those of you my age, this is Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin was on the space shuttle that got sent out in outer space. And there was, if I'm correct, they were the first space shuttle to land on the moon. And here's the thing that you need to know about Buzz that I just think is super cool because it didn't get a lot of press at the time and it doesn't get a lot of press now, but it, it's true. Um, Buzz was actually an elder in his local Presbyterian church before he was sent up there as an astronaut with NASA. He's an elder in the church. And so Buzz wrestling the same way that you and I are, are wrestling right now maybe or wrestle, will wrestle later today, wrestles with this. How do I be a Christian how do I be a disciple of Jesus? How do I find my identity and my relationship with God and do life in the rest of the world? How do I do that? And so he's wrestling with this and he goes to his pastor and he says, how do I do this? I'm being put on one of the biggest stages in human history in which all eyes on the world are focused on me and my crew members. What do I say? What do I do? What, how do I point a light on my savior with this opportunity I've been given without shoving it down people's throats or without starting a war or, or, or anger or disunity? Or how do I do this? How do I live my life as a disciple and part of the church? So he and his pastor talked and they came up with this. I just, I'm gonna read this for you. <clears throat> it says, the background of the story is that Aldrin was an elder at his Presbyterian church in Texas during this period of his life and knowing that he would soon be doing something unprecedented in human history, he felt that he should mark the occasion somehow. He asked his pastor to help him and so the pastor consecrated a communion wafer and a small vial of communion wine. And this is something we're gonna do later in the series that's gonna be so fun to be a part of because we celebrate this thing called communion. And communion was celebrated just a week and a half ago at the last supper before Jesus was betrayed and crucified, Jesus looked at all of his disciples and he took bread and he took wine and he said, every time you guys take these, remember me. Remember what I did for you. Remember the price that I paid for you. Remember me. And so here's, here's Buzz and he's going, communion, this, this could be cool. I could take this up, I could take this in space and the world could see that the first thing I do when I get into outer space and I get a view of our planet, I remember Jesus. Buzz Aldrin took them, took them with him out of Earth's orbit and onto the surface of the moon. He and Armstrong, you know, just he and Lance, had only been on the lunar surface for a few minutes when Aldrin made the following public statement. This is the LM 
which stands for Lunar Module Pilot. You can actually listen to this online, it's super cool. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in, whoever and wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. Then he ended the radio communication and there on the silent surface of the moon, 250,000 miles from home, he read a verse from the Gospel of John and he took communion. This is what he said years later after the fact to a magazine. He said, in the radio blackout, I opened the little plastic packages which contained the bread and the wine and I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given to me. That's just a fancy cup. That's what a chalice is. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine slowly curled and gracefully came up the side of the cup. How cool must have this been? Then I read the scripture, I am the vine, you are the branches. This is Jesus talking. Whoever abides in me will bring forth much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I had intended to read my communion passage back to earth, but at the last minute, they being NASA, had requested that I not do this. He says he, NASA was already embroiled in a legal battle. The celebrated opponent of religion was suing them um, over the Apollo 8's crew reading of Genesis while orbiting the moon at Christmas. So this was another situation. People just went, this, God, just look. This is so amazing. Look at it. But out of respect for his bosses, out of respect for his country, out of respect for people, and I would argue out of respect for God, he said, I, I can submit to what you're asking me to do, but it's not gonna inhibit what I do. I'm still gonna take this, I'm still gonna remember my savior. And so he took it, and just imagine this. He said, I ate the tiny toast, and I swallowed the wine, and I gave thanks for the intelligence and spirit that had brought two young pilots to the sea of tranquility. It was interesting for me to think that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food eaten were that of the communion elements. Isn't that awesome? That's just so cool. And of course, it's interesting to think that some of the first words spoken on the moon were the words of Jesus Christ who made the earth and the moon. Who you are determines what you do. And that cornerstone that we talked about, the cornerstone is not just true of the church, but it can be true of your own life. And if Jesus is the cornerstone of your life, that determines everything that you do. It determines every relationship and how you lead that relationship, how you honor people, what you do with your resources, what you do with your gifts, what you do with your talents, what you do in a church for other people. You are an ambassador of God foundation is Jesus. So it's solid. Who you are determines what you do. This is what I want to leave you with today, and then we're just going to pray. As you walk out the doors, as you start wrestling with this question of what am I supposed to do? How do I live this out tomorrow or later today or in the car ride home? Whatever it is, start by not swearing. Just be with me. Okay, good. This is what I want, to, I want to leave you with. As you walk out, I want you to think church isn't over. Church is just beginning.
that who you are as an ambassador by God sent out into the world, that determines what you do. Changes tomorrow, changes work, changes family, changes everything. Would you pray with me? God, we're just grateful to be a part of your church, to be loved by you, to be your sons and your daughters. You call your church your bride and you just look at us with such love. God, thank you for what you did for us on Easter. Thank you for setting us free of the sin and shame that, that holds so many of us bound. Thank you for breaking those chains, for giving us hope for mercy, for forgiveness, for grace. God, as we go out into the world, I just pray that, that we would embody who you are in every context we find ourselves in. That we would find our purpose and our joy in representing you to the world. That we would act out of a place of identity in our relationship with you and that we would love people like crazy, that we would be so generous with the people around us that we would leverage every influence we have, we would leverage every resource, every relationship, that we would do everything and just give it to you, Father, so that you get the glory and that our lives might be valuable when we die. God, we're so grateful to be in the space to learn from you, to learn from your word. And we just ask that you give us opportunities as we go out, opportunities to pray for people, opportunity to just be in sorrow and sadness with people, opportunities to defend others, opportunities to speak up, to give thanks to you for good situations. God, we just pray for opportunities to be used by you and to be vessels of your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your generosity. And, and you've been so, so generous with us. Give us opportunities even today or this week to be generous with others. God, we just love you so much. And we pray all of this in your son's holy name. Amen.